I'm reading a book right now about World War I. Uh, I've, I grew up in an era when history lessons were just, we skipped from one war to the next. We didn't really learn much else, but we learned about law, wars. And, uh, and I've read a great deal about World War II. I've read a lot about the Civil War. Um, but I've, I've never read a whole lot about World War I. Um, my first memory about World War I was uh, Jimmy Hill, James Hill. I grew up in a little Presbyterian church in Tyler, and the pastor who baptized me there was Dr. Robert Hill, who pastored into his late 80s, almost 90s, had a huge impact on my life. And his son came to the church, who, who was in his 70s. You know, the pastor is preaching to his 70-year-old son. And um, Jim Hill was his son. And he was a sweet, kind man. But one of the things I remember is that he would, in the middle of a sermon, just lose it, coughing. And it would sound like lungs were coming up, you know, and, and he would dismiss himself from the sermon. And I always wondered what the deal was. And finally, my father said, son, uh, Mr. Hill fought in the trench warfare of World War I. He experienced mustard gas, and the, the destruction to his lungs is still so significant. There are times when he still coughs that way. And it was the first glimpse of just how significant World War I is in world history. Um, so, just recently, Julie put me onto a book called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and a Great War by Joseph LeConte. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating because it looks at the impact of World War I on two authors that we are all aware of, uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Both were junior officers in the British Army, both fought in the trench warfare, uh, both um, were removed from the lines, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien because of uh, trench fever, um, Lewis because of wounds he sustained from a mortar. Um, but both were deeply impacted. And the fun thing about the book is it will lift passages from either uh, the tales of Narnia or from, or from the stories by Tolkien and show how they reflect the experiences of these authors in the trenches of World War I. And, and you walk away with this whole new sense of what they're describing because it impacted both of them so much. Tolkien was a nominal Catholic, at least, at the time of the war. Lewis had moved to atheism or agnosticism during the war, and, and World War I shaped both of them as they moved toward a depth of faith that would ultimately shape so many of us ever since then. Uh, World War I is fascinating because... It, it, of how it tells, speaks into the story of our, our nation. Um, if you read much about World War I, you know that it was considered the war to end all wars. And if that doesn't get a little chuckle out of you, nothing can. Uh, it, was, it was, they really believed that, that through that war they would eradicate that. And so, concurrent with World War I was this euphoric theological optimism that was expressed in a theological position called postmillennialism. Now, if you don't know what that means, you can still get into heaven. Don't worry about it. But postmillennialism, let me give you a quick description. It says that the church, the Christians, are going to make things better every day. In fact, one of their slogans was, each and every day better in every way. Uh, that we would, we, the church would be so effective that we would so impact the world that we, the world would get so good that Jesus would have to come at the end of it just to join how good we had made it. 
And, and there was an expectation. In other words, he would come at the end of this millennial kingdom brought on by human obedience. And there was this incredible op- euph- euphoric enthusiasm that things were getting so good during that time. The problem was that those who came back from the war had seen atrocities the likes of which none of us can even imagine and were deeply impacted by them. And then, of course, World War II shattered what little bit of that optimism was left. And as I've been reading the book, one of the things that struck me is how similar the ethos of that time, yes, I said ethos, um, the ethos of that time was to our time now because they're, they're developed, it, when the optimism was crushed, they developed this, this, this cynicism, this negativism, this almost pervasive sorrow throughout society because they, their hopes and dreams were so deeply crushed that, that humanity wasn't going to make the world a better place, that humans are in fact a mess. And as you, you look across the, the landscape of the world in which we live today, there's that same sense. There's this cynicism and negativity, and regardless of which end of the political or theological spectrum, it can co- take all kinds of form. But if you're on the left, it's rooted in the destruction of the atmosphere and ecology. If you're on the right, it's, it's just, you know, the conviction that this about government or whatever or the media, the reality is the overall message you get in our world today is, is pretty stinking negative, isn't it? And we're inundated with story after story on the media and the news about how bad we are. And the fact of the matter is we are. We are. And it can become kind of depressing if you shape your narrative your, your worldview, your thought life based on what's around us, it's pretty rough. We've been studying the life of Joseph. We're going to finish today with chapters 48 through 50 of Genesis. And one of the things I want you to see is that the book of Genesis, while it's about the beginnings, that's what Genesis means, the beginnings of, of creation, of humanity, of God's work through the nation of Israel, it's a story of beginnings. He he is creating a narrative that is a worldview that reflects a perspective that is part and parcel to following God. That this, this narrative, this expectation about how life will go is, is fundamental to the very beginning of the story that we have in the Bible. And when we neglect it, when we allow our, our narrative to be shaped by the world around us, then, then we drift away from the narrative that God has given in His Word. So turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 48. It's, it's the end of the life of Joseph. You recall from previous lessons, we, we brought through Joseph's heartache and break, uh, heartbreak, God, God used him to bring his family to Egypt at a time of horrible famine so that God uses the 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 lies and destruction by his brothers to cause him to be, in effect, the savior for his family. They use him to bring the people to Egypt where they will thrive as a great nation so that when they return at the Exodus, they will be a force to be reckoned with. And now it's some years later. And read with me in chapter 48, verse 1. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. 
So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and got up to, on the bed, sat up on the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and I will increase your numbers and I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. This is a reference to chapter 35, verses 9 and 12, when on the way to Egypt, God appeared to Jacob in a vision, and in that vision, he reaffirmed the covenants going back to the very beginning. It, you notice the similarity to what God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and occupy the earth, but it's, it's really an affirmation of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, when God comes to Abram and says, I am going to do great things through you, so build a great nation. And it was shocking to Abraham because at that point he had no kids, but it was a part of God's perfect plan that he would use this family to bless all people. And here, as Jacob is uh, about to die, and is a big, about to bless his progeny, his sons, he reaffirms his personal experience with that promise from God. God came and promised me the same thing, that he would do this work. Verse 5, and now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine, and any children born to you after them will be yours. What he's saying is, because God has used you this way and because you have been so faithful, I'm going to treat you as the oldest son and also because you're my, from my favorite wife. Um, and, and so there will be 12 tribes, but two of them will be descendants of yours, both the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh. You will get a double portion, which is what the oldest son would receive. And, and Joseph is being blessed because of his long obedience in the same direction. He has consistently been a man in that, who, in spite of incredible hardship, kept doing the right thing. God says, because of that, your children will receive a double blessing. You'll be treated as if you were my eldest son. And then he rehearses uh, his experience there. Any children born to you after that will be yours in the territory they inherit. They will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. Because as I was returning from Paden to my uh, sorrow, Rachel died, your mother, in the land of Canaan while we were still on a way a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath. There, that is Bethlehem. Notice that the the geographical emphasis on what God had done there in is a portrayal of what God would ultimately do in Bethlehem. Verse 11, Israel or Jacob says to Joseph, you know, I never expected to see you again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. Uh, as, as we've said over and over again, we dare not read these stories without emotion. This is a man who has now lived a very long and full life and the end of his life, he, he cannot help but express his gratitude that God gave him something he had given up on believing. He thought he had never see his son again. And he said, even that, I'm not only seeing you, but I've seen your children. I am, in effect, blessed. Verse 12, then Joseph moved the two boys from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right 
toward Israel's left and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right and brought them close to him and Israel reached out his right hand. Israel crosses his arms and blesses the younger in place of the older just as he had been blessed as the older one, uh, younger one with Esau. Verse 15, then he blessed Joseph and said, may God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. And when Joseph saw his father placed in his right hand, he corrects him, but his father says, verse 19, I know my son, I know he too will become a people and will have become great, but the younger will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. God just often works in ways that he just doesn't always listen to our instruction, does he? God often chooses to walk in ways that counter to what we expect. And one of the themes of the book of Genesis is that he often works through the younger son. And do all of you second-born feel better about yourself today? Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you... As one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Because Joseph's two sons will each be tribes, Joseph himself would not get land, and so he makes provision for Joseph himself to have Shechem, which is a trans- uh, the word that is translated the ridge. So that, uh, that he is given that land, and later on we'll discover that that's where Joseph will be buried. But did, did you catch Jacob's assumptions? I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. I'm going to die, but God's going to do it. Why? Because he said he was. Now, if you followed along in Genesis with this, one of the things, and it'll be further emphasized in the next chapter, is that one of the things you become aware of is, is the family reunion of this family is much like every family reunion. They're, they're, it's a bit of a mess. You know what I mean? I mean, their stories are stories, you know, the way it is with our families, we know the mess that is our families. It's not that our families are worse than other families, it's just we happen to know about all their mess. All the strangers are good enough to keep secrets. Um, But when, when you're around families, you begin to realize that there's a lot of, I mean, it's awkward when, when you sell your brother into slavery. That's awkward. I mean, that's, generally not considered something that's, that's recognized as a good thing, even in my hometown. And, and the fact of the matter is that the life of Jacob has not been a particularly stellar one. He's known as a deceiver because he deceived his way through the help of his mother to get his brother's birthright. He is a man who often deceives and is deceived. And yet here at the end of his life, there, there is this core belief that even though God has moved his family to Egypt, the greatest nation of that day, that God will still bring them back. And that assumption is foundational to the way he sees the world going on around him. So God, in chapter 48, wants us to see that Joseph's family will be blessed because of Joseph's obedience. And one of the themes that you see in Scripture is that if, if you want to experience a better life, then obey God's Word, right? 
That's the theme of the book of Proverbs. If you want to have a better life, be obedient to God's Word. That, That those who obey God's Word have generally better lives. Now, is that to say that people who are obedient to Scripture will, are, and to God will never have heartache? Of course not, because we live in a broken world. But, but a theme of Scripture is that you avoid a lot of trouble if you're obedient to God's Word. And God blesses those who choose to obey. And here, Joseph is being blessed because of his repeated obedience and humility before God. Now, let's look at chapter 49, which is a roll call of the family, gener- which I've called generational consequences. Verse 1, then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. First Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, my first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters. You will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. In chapter 35, verse 22, in one little verse, it says that Reuben slept with his father's concubine, Bilka. And while Jacob doesn't do anything then, he says, you will pay a consequence for that disobedience. And, and you, you, one of the themes of this is these great tribes will in some ways be shaped by the disobedience or obedience of the patriarchs of that tribe. The fathers of that tribe will have uh, sow seeds that will be lived out in their families. The book of Numbers says the sin of the fathers is visited upon the generations up to three and four removed. And the reality is one of the things you can see in life is that, that families create heritages and often those heritages lived out with either blessing or curse based on the father's obedience. The parents' truth and commitment to God's Word. And, and while we can break that cycle, and many of you have broken cycles of families that were in destruction, the reality is families matter, and you see that played out in the tribes as God uses Jacob to either bless or tell of difficulties that will happen in the families because of their lives. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. This is referring to an angry attack against Shechem in chapter 34 when these two brothers brought revenge. And it was not a function of war where God was directing his people according to his will for the nation, but it was instead a spiteful and angry thing. And God said, your anger and your violence will have a consequences. I, even though you're the next two born, you will not inherit the blessings of the firstborn because there are consequences for what you do. And one of the things, by the way, that you, you get the sense of as you read this is we run up again against that great theological problem. And that is that, that God clearly has a plan for these nations, these families. As we'll see in the next one, for Judah, there is a plan that God has had for all time that Judah, from the tribe of Judah would come the king who would be the Messiah, who would bring about the fulfillment of the covenants. But... Part of how God does that eternal plan according to His sovereign will is through the decision and choices that we make. That that Levi and Simeon, these are people who have made choices. 
And those independent choices they have made play out in the consequences according to God's eternal plan. So the, one of the great theological questions is, which is it? Is it God's sovereign plan or is it our human choice? And I've studied a lot and I've come to the conclusion, yes. Yes. And, and that I'm not capable, my peanut mind is not big enough to understand how God sovereignly works through human responsibility. And if, if I did, then I would be equal to God. But I, I make a mistake if I try to force God into a small enough box that I can understand that tension. The reality is, it is a mystery how He sovereignly decrees an eternity past to do His will, and yet human responsibility and human decision-making is a part of that for which we live out our lives. And the book of Job begged God to explain all of that to him, and when it was all over, God looked at him and said, yo, Job, were you there when I created the world? Okay, that's all the answer I'm going to give you. You're not God. Therefore, it is a tension that we live with and cannot explain. So, as you see these blessings and cursings coming from Jacob living out and his sons and the ultimate tribes, you see how it works hand in hand that they live out the consequences for their actions, and yet it all aligns perfectly with God's sovereign will. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you, and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, O Judah. You are turned from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nation of his. One of the most significant prophecies, certainly in the book of Genesis, I believe one of the most significant in all the Old Testament, because here through Jacob the father, God makes it clear that the ultimate blessing as signaled in the Abrahamic covenant will be ultimately fulfilled through the tribe of Judah. And that's why the genealogies in the book of Matthew and Luke are so significant, because they are showing how God used human people, which are often humans and people, how, how God uses uh, the humanity and the stories of Scripture so that in such a way that it will be from the tribe of Judah that the Messiah will come, the one who will bring blessings to all humanity. Uh, Jesus is a descendant of Judah through David and the Davidic promise of 2 Samuel 7. In the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, Jesus is that descendant through whom God will revolutionize the world, bless all people, because he will first die for the sins of the world on the cross. So that any come to him and confess their sins and trust in him for their salvation can have eternal life, as signified by his resurrection from the dead. And he will ultimately work through Jesus to bless all humankind as he comes to reestablish his reign on earth. And this prophecy that it will come from Judah is very significant for that. Because notice he said, the scepter will not leave your hand. In other words, the, it will be from the tribe of Judah that you will always reign. Now, if you know the Bible, you think, but, but the first king wasn't from the tribe of Judah. Saul was a Benjaminite. And that's another illustration that God, God allows us to do our thing. 
The people of Israel chose Saul. You know why? Because he was tall. Bad decision. Wasn't a great king, right? Not a criteria to choose your kings just because they're tall. I'm just saying. Think about it. But they, they chose Saul, but God in his eternal plan all knew that it would be, all along knew it would be David from the tribe of Judah through whom he would do his work. And we, we see those two disparate realities of his sovereignty and our human responsibility walking together perfectly in God's plan. I don't have time to go through the rest of it. Having seen this promise that Judah would be the one through whom there would be a king, Verse 11, he continues, he will tether his donkey to a vine, obviously his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. All words have themes that are play out in Jesus' life. And his eyes will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. In other words, there is this spectacular special role for Judah because from him will come the scepter of the king. In the rest of the passage, he goes through promises and blessings and curses for each of the other tribes. And the interesting thing is we don't know that much about each of these tribes so that we don't know exactly how they are fulfilled. They're very brief and they're hard to explain, but we do know that this was how God spoke to these tribes in his plan for this people. Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. And then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite along with the field. There Abram and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. And the field and the cave in it were brought from the Hittites. And Jacob finished giving these instructions to his sons, grew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. His last words were, God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise. Bury me with my grandfather and grandmother, with my father and mother, because it was through him the promise was made, and I believe at my deathbed that God will keep that promise. Take my body there. Chapter 50 is about assurance for the future because of God's promises. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Remember last week that God promised Jacob Joseph will close your eyes in death. So here that is specifically fulfilled because Joseph is there and weeps over him in his death. The tenderness of this intergenerational love is, is expressed. Then Joseph, verse 2, directed all the physicians in the service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him and, and taken a full 40 days. It was an Egyptian thing to embalm. The Hebrews didn't do it. But the Egyptians did it because they believed that bodies would be brought into the afterlife, and so they buried them with all their toys so they'd have stuff to play with, and it was a part of their whole deal. He has him embalmed because he's promised that he would take his body to Israel so it would be preserved to Canaan. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I had found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear on an oath. I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug myself. 
for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father and I will return. And Pharaoh is thrilled to serve Joseph in this way and a whole mess of them go back to bury Joseph. Verse 10, when they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly and there Joseph observed a seven day period of mourning for his father. And when the Canaanites who lived there heard it all, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning, and that's why they called it Abal Mizraim. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so they buried him there. Verse 15, they said, when they saw that father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? Well, it's a little late to be thinking of that, boys. Um, and he pays us back for all the wrong we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. And this is what your dad said. They said to Joseph, ask you to forgive your brothers for the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. And now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God, your father. And when their message came to them, Joseph wept. And his brothers then came and threw themselves before him and said, we are your slaves. And Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he assured them and spoke kindly to them. And at the end, he says, make sure you bury me in Canaan. And, and this whole, whole book is about all these broken, messy people. I mean, the 12 brothers are a mess. That's why the, the chapter 49, those blessings aren't exactly really blessing, right? And yet, this theme keeps going forward that no matter how big a mess you make of things, I'm still at work. God, God's going to do His work. He, he's going to raise up the, the son of Abraham, the descendant, who will one day reign and bring about God's perfect will. He will bring grace in the midst of what you deserve as judgment. And because he promised you will return to the land of Israel, guess what? The land of Canaan, you're going to return. And, and these patriarchs of the family, Jacob and then Joseph, both affirm their conviction that it's true by saying, and make sure you bury me there because I want to be close to my family. And, and in spite of all of the negative stuff, the dysfunction in the family, the brokenness, the lies, the violence, God's still at work. And the book of Genesis, that book of beginning says, it begins badly, but don't worry. God is still at work. He will do His work. Men and women, leave it. we live in an incredibly cynical time. I like the period after World War I when they, they, they thought they had fought the war to win all wars and then end all wars, and yet things just got worse and worse in another world war, and, and people lost all hope. We've kind of been stepped into a time like that. Regardless of your perspective, there's a negativity, a hopelessness that pervades everything. And you, you blame somebody, probably, you know, if you're on the right, you blame the left. If you're on the left, you blame the right. If you're in the middle, you blame everybody. I mean, I mean regardless whether it's political or our media or our education, our, our churches, churches have, we've seen horrible atrocities accomplished by church leaders. Every institution that we have honored historically has disappointed in a tragic way in recent years. 
And consequently, there is this pervasive mood in our society of hopelessness and, and depression. The number one classification of pharmaceuticals now is antidepressants. And no matter how blessed we are materially and otherwise with incredible freedoms, we're just sad. We have allowed this, this narrative to take over our thinking of all is lost. There is no hope. That's not a biblical narrative. It's not a biblical narrative. The narrative of Scripture is, yes, humans are a mess. God told us first. He knows how big a mess we are better than we do, right? It's no surprise to God that we're a mess, just as it was no surprise to him that the family of Jacob was a mess. We're a mess. That's the key theological term I want you to walk away with, mess, right? Mess. We're a mess. But as long as God's in charge, there's hope. God does his work. You know, the, the, the brothers of Joseph sell him into slavery after deciding not to murder him, kind of them. And God uses that to make them into a great nation. Repeatedly, we see humanity disappoint God and disappoint ourselves. Repeatedly, we humans take anything and turn it into a mess. And, and God is not surprised once by that, but neither are his plans harmed. Because God is always at work, and God always has a plan, and that plan will be accomplished because He promised it. He made it in eternity past. He's promised it repeatedly throughout Scripture, and His promises will be true. Why? Because we deserve them? Heavens, no. It has nothing to do with that. Because He's God. Because He's truth. Because He's love. Because of who He is. There is an overwhelming narrative, story, that no matter how dark the times come in the trench warfare that is our world, his narrative will win. And when we get caught up in all of the verbiage around us so that we believe the lie that all is lost, then we're no longer looking at God, we're looking at everything else. Because when we look at him, we should have the confidence of the hope that we have in him the surety of His truth in His Word, and the reality that if He's promised it, it's true. 1984, first time I ever heard E.V. Hill preach. E.V. Hill was an African-American pastor in Watts. I had the privilege, Julie and I did one time, of picking him up and taking him to a speaking engagement. One of the most endearing humans I have ever met in my life. Always will be one of my heroes. Not very tall. And in and, and the, and the sermon, he said, I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, God said it, and I believe it, and that's that. He said, that is all wrong. If, it does, if God said it, it doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It is that. And the reality is that we can have hope and confidence and encouragement, not because of what we see around us, but because of what we see in God's Word. And God's Word says that God has a plan, and He gave us confidence in that plan because of what He did through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, whereby we could have forgiveness for our sins. And the promises about what His Son will accomplish in future days give us confidence that no matter how bad things are, He hasn't walked away from us, and we 
can believe him and have hope and encouragement and have the courage to get up in the morning and do what we're called to do. And we dare not let all the noise around us steal our joy and hope in him, no matter how bad it is. And when we become so negative, we, we betray the fact that it's no longer his word that is shaping our worldview. It's the word that we hear all around us. Do I fear for the world in which my grandchildren are growing up? Sure I do. Do do I worry about what goes on in our country and in the world today with things moving in ways that are new in my life? Sure I do. Is there possibility for all kinds of negative things to happen? Of course there are. But is God in control or isn't he? Is God's word true or isn't it? Joseph is the story of a man who over and over and over again experienced incredibly difficult times that absolutely broke his heart, but he never veered because he trusted in his hope in God. No matter how deep the trenches, no matter how hard the war, he kept going. And look at the way God used him. See, if you and I lose hope, we stop being useful. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we can so easily lose hope. Forgive us that we take our eyes off of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.